as you are seated. I want to encourage you, uh, say this just from time to time, um, if you don't uh, bring your Bible with you, we'd love you to do that. If, if uh, you're new here, you should know every week we're trying to open up the scriptures and see what God might be saying to us through his word. And so um, if you have one at home, please do bring it. I recognize some of you might be using your phone or a tablet. If you don't have one or if you forget one, just trying to get out the door, know that there are obviously those Bibles that are in the seats by you. We're going to be in um, Matthew 6 and 9 today, but we're going to be starting in Matthew 6 on page 811 of the Bibles that are in your chairs. So if you could, um, maybe just open to that and keep a, a pen or something else there as we get to that in just a couple minutes. Again, that's Matthew chapter 6, I believe on page 811 of those Bibles. And as we begin, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing weather Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to be together and to worship you. And we pray, Lord, as we do open your word and as um, we engage with your scriptures, that your spirit would indeed be our guide, that, Lord, we would more faithfully understand you, know you, draw near to you, and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in my second year of seminary, uh, I went to a party of seminarians that was down the street from my house. Some of you are wondering, do seminarians have parties? Yes, we do. We did. I can't speak to Beeson. Um, uh, but we, not quite like Animal House, for those of you who are wondering what they were, looked like, maybe a little bit more tame, but we did. And I was talking to a guy who was, who was in his first year, and I looked at him, and I, I asked him a question. I said, hey, um, I went to a place called Gordon Conwell, and I said, tell me, how, how did you end up at Gordon Conwell? How did you decide to go to seminary? And I was very intrigued by the answer that he gave me because it was, it was something that I hadn't heard. He, he looked at me and he said, well, I, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but I really decided to go off to seminary after a week of prayer and fasting. Now, that was so intriguing to me because I worked part-time in the admissions office at Gordon-Conwell with some of my friends. And so I would have conversations with people all the time like, what got you here? How did you end up here? What made you decide to come? And interestingly, this was the first time I had ever heard say, some, someone say anything like, well, it was because of prayer and fasting. So let me ask you this. When's the last time you heard somebody talk about fasting? I don't, I don't mean in a Bible study. I don't mean on TV. or What I'm talking about is in conversation with each other, Christians. When's the last time you heard that? When's the last time you might have talked about it. I talked about it. I, I know for me, it has been a good while since I've fasted in a way that's not connected um, with something a church is doing or another group of Christians. That's not to say that we should feel guilty about that. It's just to say, I, I think this is the case. Um, it's not something that a lot of us tend to think about that often. We're going to start a new series today during the season of Lent that we're calling Drawing Near. Okay, and we're going to be thinking about what are these different tools that God offers to us seemingly in the scriptures that we can avail ourselves of. Now, I just want to say this. If you happen to be visiting with us for the first time today, you need to know uh, at St. Peter's, we're thinking about this for two reasons. One, because we believe when you read the scriptures and you get at the essence of what Christianity is about and, and the essence of the gospel, it is not primarily ethical. In other words, the gospel is not primarily about doing right in order that God might accept us. It's primarily relational. It's about being redeemed by him 
accepted by him and, and walking in a relationship with him that starts not just after we die. We don't have to wait till then to start that relationship. But we can enjoy it now, walking through life, drawing near to him moment by moment. It's very much, if you remember those words from Jesus in, in John chapter 15, when he's talking to the disciples about abiding in him, um, remaining in him. He uses that image of the vine and the branches. He's talking about staying connected to him. So, so Christianity is about a relationship with him. Can ultimately, uh, this thing that is fasting is one of the many tools, it seems, that he gives us as an opportunity for intimacy with him. That's, that's why we're thinking about this and not just fasting from, from food and from water or other things we might drink, but really from other things. So we're gonna try to think about this subject today. And, and one, you know, I know that there are some of us that are thinking like, is fasting really for Christians today? I get that. We're gonna be thinking about that. Why might that be the case? How is it different from maybe... Uh, New Year's resolutions, you know, the, the, where we decide that we're not going to do something that probably we shouldn't be doing anyway. Is it really different from that? And, it, and if it is, what value does it offer me? Can this really be a positive experience? Okay, and we're, we're going to try to journey through those by asking four questions to, to break up our time. One, how does the Old Testament talk about fasting? Okay, that would be a great place to start. Second, how does the New Testament talk about it? How do we see Jesus talking about it? How does he relate to it? How is it present in his life and the life of the disciples? And number three, how does it work? Like what, what, what's really the design within fasting that, that gives us the, the opportunity to draw near to God in the way that we're talking about? And then finally, if this is something that we as Christians might be thinking about doing at times, what are some maybe some very practical ways that we can think about approaching it? That's what we're gonna be thinking about this morning. Let's then start with that first one. How does the Old Testament talk about this? And I don't want to pretend as if I'm about to give some sort of exhaustive Old Testament lecture on fasting and all of the, of the uh, scriptures in the Old Testament. What, what I do want to do, though, is paint a very brief picture of what I think are the four main ways that we see fasting being talked about in the Old Testament. So number one, we see uh, fasting being talked about in the context of repentance. So for example, with Ahab, okay, 1 Kings 21, verse 9, um, Elijah the Tishbite comes to Ahab and tells Ahab about God's judgment that goes, that's going to fall on him because of all the messed up stuff that he's done. Okay, all the idolatry. It's going to be very, very bad. And, and what does Ahab do? It says there in verse 9, he, he does what are traditional signs of of uh, repentance, he tears his clothes, and among other things, he fasts. And ultimately, if you look at that story, God sees his repentance, and in some ways, to some degree, stays his hand against Ahab. So we see it associated with repentance. We see it connected to mourning. So you look at a place like Esther. In the book of Esther, chapter 4, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, you may remember this uh, letter goes out with the decree from the king, explaining that all the Jews are ultimately to be destroyed. It's very bleak. And, and what do the people do? They call together all the Jews and they fast. They're doing this as an expression of mourning. And obviously this is different in the sense that it's not an individual that's doing it. This is a group of people that are doing it together. 
Another example is fasting used in the context as an appeal to God. So 2 Chronicles 20, if you, some of you remember the story of Jehoshaphat. He's in that situation where they're going to be attacked, has no idea what to do. And the only thing he knows is there is one who knows what to do, and that's God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to seek him. It says in verse 3, he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. So again, it's, it's being done here in the, co- in the context of people as a group reaching out to God, um, appealing to him, petitioning him. We see the same thing being done on an individual level with David. So 2 Samuel 12, we read about the child that David has with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, the child um, born in adultery. And, and what does David do? He, uh, he fasts and he's doing this for the sake of the child, okay? In order, pleading to God, God, will you please, please rescue this child? And then finally, okay, we, we read about it in the context um, from which we read earlier, as Frank was reading for us from Isaiah 58, okay? And I think this is probably the sense that most of us tend to think of when we, when we hear fasting, which is this sense of kind of a broader devotion and sacrifice before God. And, and that's what's going on in that passage. Though remember what's going on really is that God is calling out the people of God through Isaiah as the prophet. And that's because even though they're doing these things inwardly, okay, they're fasting, they're, they're being really religious. They think that they're coming before him. They are not living out these things outwardly with the poor, with the hungry. It reminds us of when Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees, and he cites Isaiah and says, remember, they, they, um, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are from, from, far from me. It's very much that sense. So there are four, and I believe the four main ways that we read about fasting in the Old Testament, again, with repentance, with mourning, okay, with, with an appeal to God, and then finally with a broader sense of worship. There, there's the 30,000-foot view, maybe 100,000-foot view. It's a big picture. Let's think about it now in the context of the New Testament then. Because obviously, if you're a Christian here today, that's, that's what we care most about. Okay, tell me what Jesus has to say about this. And we're going to look at that for a moment and see how he experienced it, how he talked about it, and then how we see this in the lives, for example, of the first disciples. And, and that's why we need to open, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to go to Matthew 6 first on page 811. So Matthew 6, starting in Matthew 6, Jesus is going to talk about three things that he's assuming his followers are going to do. Remember, so giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. And if you look at them carefully, they all have a similar formula. And the kind of interpretive key for understanding what he's getting at in all three of these is the way that it starts out in verse 1. Verse 1 Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So, so y'all, when it comes to these things, he's saying, you're, you're giving to the needy, your prayers to me, your fasting. Don't do the right things for the wrong reasons. 
They're not all about you. They're about me, okay? They're about God. That's the reason that you should do them. But let's, let's slow down then, and let's look at the way that he talks in particularly uh, about fasting, because if we can look there, again, very carefully, we can start to see him paint a picture of, of the way that maybe we as his disciples should relate to this. And we're going to start then in verse 16. So he says, and when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Why? That their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So again, that's, that's the broader point. Don't do these things to draw attention to yourself. But notice, did you see, when Jesus talks about fasting here, he does not use the language of if. All y'all know where this is going. He uses the language of when, two times. 16, and when you fast. 17, and when you fast. He, he treats this in a way that he's just assuming, in, we don't know the regularity, but in some way, it sounds like Jesus is assuming this is going to be something his disciples are doing. So he treats it in this way in Matthew 6. He seems to talk about it in a really similar way in Matthew chapter 9. So now if you have one of those Bibles that was in the seats, we're now going to go to 814, just a couple pages ahead. We're going to start in verse 14 of Matthew 9. So read it with me. That Then... It says that some of the disciples of John come to Jesus. They've got a question. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? Your disciples don't fast. Okay, so hey, Jesus, uh, we're religious. We're followers of, of John the Baptist. Um, we fast. Those people, the Pharisees, they're fasting. What about your people? They're not fasting. Why is that the case? What does he say in 15? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them. Then they will fast. Okay, we're just gonna stop there. Now, what, we're gonna look at two things that are really significant when Jesus responds in this way. One is we gotta look at that imagery that he's using of the bridegroom and the bride. And remember this, if some of y'all hear this for the first time and you're going, what in the world is he talking about when he's using this picture from the wedding? Remember, the people of God historically had understood salvation, at least in one way, as a bridegroom coming to his bride, with, with God being the bridegroom and his people being the bride. And so when he talks about the, the bride, or I'm sorry, when we read about the, the, the mourning and the, um, well, the fasting that's taking place while the, the bridegroom is away, what, what is happening is that the, the, uh, the bride would do these things because she longed for the presence of the bridegroom. The bridegroom was missed. And so there was a mourning there. There was a fasting. And, and all he's saying is, look, don't you understand? The bridegroom's going away, y'all. The, the, Jesus is going to send to the Father. And the time between when he goes to the Father and when he comes back, he is going to be missed. That, that includes us. We miss him now. Remember in Philippians, Paul says, I don't know what's better to, to depart and be with Christ 
or to remain with y'all. There, there is a longing in the Christian life for God, for his son, Jesus. And so Jesus says, look, the reason that the disciples aren't fasting right now is because I am with them. That's why this is happening. It's, it's interesting. Notice his answer is not, well, I know you're wondering why we don't fast. Let me tell you why my disciples don't fast. It is not a matter of if. Again, it's a matter of timing. It's a matter of when. So we read it there. Um, if you go to the Luke account of this same story or, or historical account, it's Luke chapter five. It's the same thing. These are the three places okay, where, where Jesus is teaching explicitly about the nature of, or in the, the role of fasting in the life of his followers. And so how do we summarize this based on what we've seen? Specifically, in the life and the teaching of Jesus. I think we're on safe ground to describe it in these ways, okay? One, based on what Jesus says, there's nowhere that he says his followers shouldn't fast. That's really clear. He's got every opportunity to come out and say, y'all, this is just a bad idea. I've seen it go in, in some really bad ways. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that anywhere. He doesn't say that anybody's gonna be punished if they fast. What he does seem to do is talk about fasting as if something that his disciples are going to do as an expression of their commitment to God and their longing for God. That seems to be the way that he talks about it. Something that his followers are going to do. We can debate the, the regularity or how often, but something his followers are going to do as an expression of their commitment to him and their love for him, their longing for him. That seems to be about as specific as, as he gets in his explicit teaching. So what we're going to do now then is, having seen that, let's then look for a second at, at the way that it's used in the life of some of uh, the earliest followers of God, the earliest disciples. We're look at other places in the New Testament. On one hand, okay, we're going to see him um, do this with the prophetess, Anna. Okay, do you remember? So in, in Luke chapter 2, she's introduced Verse 37, she's this, this woman, this is after Jesus is presented in the temple as one that, quote, did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. So, so fasting, in her case, is being connected to and associated with this life of worship and this devotion to God. Then we've got the example of Jesus, some of you are like, when are we getting to Jesus? Obviously, Jesus fasted. We have that temptation in the wilderness. He's out there. He is fasting and praying for 40 days. Uh, most of y'all know we're, we're intended to be reminded of at least two places we know in the Old Testament where this is going on with Moses, where Moses is fasting and praying for 40 days. Again, out of this uh, fidelity and, and worship to God. We see it in those situations. We also see it in other places in the New Testament where it's being associated with uh, what look like specific moments or events. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the book of Acts, and there aren't that many places, for example, in other places beyond the gospels that really talk about this except Acts. But in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, you read about fasting playing a role in the way that the church in Antioch commissions Saul and Barnabas for ministry. So here's what it says 
in Acts 13.2. While they, this is the church in Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So here, here's this group. They're fasting. They're praying. The Holy Spirit speaks. And what's he say? Verse three. I'm sorry. He, he, tell, he tells them to set them aside. And then what do they do after that? Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, here's a question that we should probably be asking when we look at that. Okay, can we say that as the church was gathered and as they were worshiping, as they were praying, do we know for a fact that if they had not fasted, the Holy Spirit would not have spoken to them? No, we don't know that. Do we know that Saul and Barnabas would have been shortchanged spiritually if as they were set apart for ministry and as they were sent off, They were prayed for, uh, hands were laid on them, but there wasn't any fasting that took place. Would God have rejected their ministry? No. But in some way, as this is going on, as as the people of God are coming to him, looking to him, praising him to him, and and responding in obedience to him, somehow fasting's connected there. And so think about everything that we've seen here in, in the life of Jesus, in these ones, how does the New Testament talk about it? Jesus doesn't command it. He assumes that it's going to take place in some way, and we see it connected to the, the people of God pursuing a God-centered life as his followers. I think that's the best way or one of the better ways that we can characterize it. So we spent a lot of time there trying to put ourselves on good ground scripturally when it comes to this, okay? When I have clarity about exactly the ways the scriptures might be talking about this, now it'd be fair to ask the question, so how does this work? Okay, if, if this is something that it seems like we might be encouraged to do or to think about doing, and it, it could make a contribution to my walk with God, how, how does that work? Why is it making a contribution? Maybe one of the easiest ways to, to answer this is to say, what do we know is not taking place when we fast? Follow me here for a second. One of the things that we know, number one, is that when we fast, this is not us earning some sort of an audience with God by proving to him that we're holy. That's not what fasting is. How do we know that? I mean, think about what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 12. He talks about the fact that we have boldness and access with confidence. How? Through our faith in him. So, um, God's not sitting in an office with a, a, a red phone for prayers that he only picks up once he knows we, for, we forewent a meal for a couple days, okay? Oh, finally, they got the picture. Okay, he, he, he calls us sons, daughters. We can call him Abba. He says, you are to call out to me. Jesus teaches us how to pray in that Matthew 6 passage. You can talk to me and we don't have to prove that we're worthy We don't have to wonder, ooh, am I good enough this time? Is he gonna hear me? He hears us. So that's one reason that we're not doing it. We're not doing it also, and this has to do with that passage from Colossians 2 that we're not gonna get in, we're not gonna go in depth. We're not doing this to avoid certain things that we know are bad. One example possibly being food. Okay, we we don't 
We don't fast because food actually is, is bad. And as Christians, we should really only eat enough to just keep us alive. But enjoying things like this, um, it's, it's not what we should be doing. It's not a matter of what, what Paul um, uses or describes as man-made religion. It's not an asceticism. We know food and drink and other things that God has made, material things are to be welcomed in gratitude to God. That's not what's going on. It's not like, again, the New Year's resolutions where we're, we're not doing something um, this year that we probably shouldn't be doing anyway. That's not what's going on. What is going on? And a friend of mine put it this way to me recently. He said, sometimes we have to go without in order to go deeper in. That's deeper in a fellowship with God. Sometimes we have to go without in order to go deeper in. In other words, one of the things that fasting can do, might not always do this, but one of the things that fasting can do as it causes us to slow down and to reflect is that it can even identify for us, it can put a giant magnifying glass over what are some of the things that might be idols to us? What are the, some of the things that we might serve and serve to such an extent that we're actually not serving God or we neglect to serve him? Richard Foster's wrote a book that many of you know about. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. And here's one way that he talks about the possibilities and the power of fasting. He says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things, this is helpful, that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what's inside of us with food and with other things. Don't a lot of us do that? A lot of us, so many other things we look to. Paul David Tripp's another Christian author who has a devotion on Lent uh, that's just been published. And in, in promotion of that devotional, he um, was, wrote something raising some of the questions that can help us identify these sort of things. He asks, what do you feel you can't live without? What is that for you? What the, what is, the loss of what would leave you a bit depressed? And then he uses his opposite question that gets us to the same thing. He says, what sort of thing has the power to give you instant happiness? So again, for some of us, the, the most helpful thing for us to uh, abstain from or to fast from, it might be food. Okay, that, that might be the most helpful thing. For others of us, it, it could be all kinds of different things. It might be social media. It might be Facebook. It might be TikTok, Instagram. It might be television for some of us. I mean, it's going to look different for every one of us as if this is something that we were to do. But, but don't miss the deeper point here. Remember, it is not simply about avoiding things. It's not, and especially avoiding things that have to be bad. Sometimes this is about avoiding things that are good things that have now become ultimate things to us. They have become idols. And we do this all in pursuit of, again, communion with the one that has forgiven us, adopted us, and invited us into the God-centered life. That's why we do this. That's what's going on here. We do it, we go without so that we can go deeper in, so that we can draw near. So we've seen how the scriptures might shed some light on it. We've thought about maybe some of 
the architecture to it. Now let's think about what are some maybe some basic ways that we can think about those of us who, as we read this, go, okay, may, maybe this is a tool that I can avail myself of. Maybe could I offer just four suggestions? And I say this, I'd, I'm not standing up here saying I'm, I'm some wise Christian sensei that can tell you out of a wealth of my own experience. This is something I, I have a lot to learn in. Um, but but I'll, I want to draw near to God. I know that. I know you as also as a people that want to do that. So what are some of the ways that we might do that? Again, not proving anything before him, but pressing in, abiding. Number one, okay, whatever we're fasting from, especially if this is food, we got to know our limits. <laughs> we got to know our limits. Some of y'all, uh, it would not be wise to fast from food because you've got glucose level issues level issues, you've, you've got some sort of medical condition where um, not having food regularly isn't just something that recenters you. It actually is really bad for you. And it makes you a really unproductive member of your family. It makes you uh, someone that's really hard to work with at the office. Okay, in that case, you might need to think about something else. And remember though, some of us go, well, man, doesn't it really have to hurt? Yes and no. I mean, the point's not to show God how much um, pain I'm willing to go through in order to get him to like me. It's not what fasting is. That's number one, know your limits. Number two, okay, we probably need to fast from something again. If we do this, where we actually notice it. Okay, you remember being, the, the, you remember being some of you grew up in the church, uh, sitting at the dinner table and your family saying, what are you giving up for Lent, Billy? And it's, I'm giving up vegetables. Okay, that's not what fasting is. Okay, it's giving up something that um, we're regularly mindful of. Okay, something, something that it's hard to go without. So maybe it is food. Again, may, maybe it is social media. May, maybe it's, again, maybe it's, for some of us, um, maybe it's cable news. Maybe there is something, and you all have to think about it. I'm thinking right now, especially of our, of our phones. This might not apply to everybody. A lot of us, we have got invisible chains going from our wrists to our hands. And I am the chief of sinners. And every square moment of, of space in our day, in the line at the grocery store, while the gas is pumping, sitting at the DMV. Okay, okay maybe you can use your phone at the DMV. But everywhere else, everywhere else, we are glued to this. And, and not only is this pulling us away from these people that God's calling us to in Isaiah 58, but it's pulling us away from him. And again, pressing into him and abiding in him. Two more examples and we'll finish. One, remember, um, fasting is not ultimately about, I should say, fasting is ultimately about connection. It's not about negation. So when we withhold from one thing, it can be really helpful for us to replace it with, someone, with something else. If you're someone that's decided, hey, I'm not gonna have a meal at lunch for a certain period of time, maybe one of the most helpful things to do is still take time where you would have had your meal, but to sit maybe with a Bible for a little bit of time or uh, to pray. Or maybe I was sharing with some of you about that app on our phone we can have for unreached people groups. Maybe it means you're pulling out your phone, you're reading some scripture, you're reading about an unreached people group that's been identified for the day of people that don't have access to the gospel and you're praying for them, for, for people to be equipped and sent to them. Ultimately, this is not about asceticism. 
This is about worship. So one of the most helpful things that we can do is maybe replace it with something else. And then finally, we've talked a lot about private fasting. Just remember corporate fasting. There is a great power. We saw this in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament. We saw it in that church in Antioch. Um, There's something really powerful about having a friend say to us, hey, I've got this going on. Um, Particularly, maybe I've got a big decision I've got to make for my career, for my family. Um, I'm going to fast. I know this might not be something that you do, but would you consider fasting? Maybe, Maybe skipping breakfast on Wednesday? I don't know. And when you do that, would you think of me? I've had people ask me to do that with them. I can't tell you what that meant to me. I've never talked to anyone that looked back in that and said, well, that was awful. You know what they would say? Wow, that was powerful. And most importantly, what we would see is, and God answered prayer. That does not mean that God's a, some sort of a fasting slot machine. We skip breakfast and then we pull the side, you know, and then he's gonna spit out an answer. But he delights and he is honored when his children come to him and say, Abba, Abba, will you help me? Would he ever turn his back? Would he ever, even if he doesn't give us the answer that we would want, would, would we ever turn our back on our own kids for those of you who have children? And can we imagine a reason he would ever turn his back on us? So maybe four simple ways to think about that. If you're thinking about doing that, especially in the weeks to come as we continue during this season, for, for us to know our limits, to, to fast from something that we actually really, really love, that we really identify with, something we actually hunger for. Okay, to replace it with something else, okay? So withholding from one thing so we can actually feast on God and then maybe doing it with other people. Okay, walking together in this thing that is abiding. None of these things that we just talked about, admittedly, are commanded in scripture, but certainly they've been made available to us in pursuit of a God-centered life. And as we pursue that together this year during Lent, let's do that. Let's, let's draw near to him that we can experience and taste more of him and that he might receive the glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.